What can we learn from John Stuart Mill? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Sandra Peart. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Sandra Peart. Sandra began her career as an assistant professor of economics at the College of William and Mary, and then joined the faculty at Baldwin Wallace University. She was a visiting scholar at the Center for Study of Public Choice at George Mason University in 2004 and 2005, and the following year she was a fellow on the American Council on Education. Now, she is Dean and E. Claiborne Robbins, Distinguished Professor in Leadership Studies and President Jepson Scholars Foundation at Richmond University. Sandra has written or edited 10 books, including her two most recent, co-authored with David M. Levy, Towards an Economics of Natural Equals, a documentary history of the early Virginia school, and Escape from Democracy, the role of experts and the public in economic policy. She is also the author of more than 100 articles in the areas of constitutional political economy, leadership in experimental settings, ethics and economics, and the transition to modern economic thought. Her articles on leadership, ethics, higher education, and economic themes have appeared in the New York Times, the Chronicle of Higher Education, USA Today, and the Washington Post. And of course, she is also the author of The Essential John Stuart Mill. That work will form the basis of much of our conversation today. So Sandra, welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So Sandra, we base each episode on a question and go wherever the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is, what can we learn from John Stuart Mill? And of course, that will cover a lot of breath and we could probably talk for hours upon hours. We only do have about an hour together today. So l- let's try and cover as much breadth as we can and-, and cover definitely some important high level points. But I'd like to start actually first with where you started your writing on this in one of your pieces. So you say some biographical context will prove helpful before we proceed to Mill's intellectual contributions to philosophical, political and economic thought. And then the rest of your piece on this matter goes into the other things. But but first you start with the biographical points. And before I ask you some specific questions on the biographical points, why should we start there? Oh, that's a fabulous question. So let me just say that, um, you know, lots of people know some things about John Stuart Mill's life, his very odd relationship with the woman he finally married, Harriet Taylor. Um, and, and I'm not one to say that everything should be explained by one's biography, but but he is someone who paid dearly for the positions he took, for the intellectual positions he took, and for the choices that he made. Uh, and so I think it's important to know something about those choices uh, and to understand just how much he, he did pay. So for instance, uh, the relationship with Harriet cost him his relationship with his family. Um, and so, you know, to make that sort of choice, knowing where it would lead, because I think Mill knew that uh, his friends and his family would isolate him as a re- result of that relationship, um, uh, shows just how, how much he was willing to pay for his beliefs and his intellectual commitments and his emotional commitments uh, as well. And then to understand uh, you know how he was raised by his father to be a utilitarian in a, in a you know deeply Benthamite tradition, uh, and to struggle to reform his own beliefs and his own self. Uh, and his writings are very much you know if, there, if there's a theme that goes runs through them, they're about how we should all have the ability to reform ourselves. Uh, and and I think so. I think that personal struggle. Um, 
I, I don't think it caused him to take that position, you know, that we should all be able to reform ourselves, but it, it's at least consonant with that position. Uh, and and it, it's important for us to understand just how much he struggled against the influence of the giant intellects, um, Bentham, David Ricardo, James Mill, uh, who, you know, were so deeply influential on his upbringing. So that's why I want to start with, you know, some personal detail. That's awesome because that traces some specific points that I want to get deeper into. Incidentally, before we even booked the podcast in this episode together, I actually had just finished reading the autobiography this year myself. So I feel like this is getting into a bunch of stuff that I'd I'd love to chat about. So so let's actually start sort of at the beginning. Um, There's a lot to be said for John's uh, intellectual uh, uh, upbringing, his education, that is to say, and of course, later on his conviction that he would not just simply parrot these uh, any manufactured opinions. But but before we get ahead of ourselves, can you sort of paint a bit of a picture of of what that sort of younger uh, life for John Stuart Mill looked like with his ed- with his sort of famed education and with his father? Right. So very regimented uh, would be how I would describe it. Um, so James Mill uh, and Jeremy Bentham um, decided to raise an experiment. Um, someone who would be the most pos- most educated person, you know, for the mid nineteenth century uh, conceivable. Someone who you know, at a very young age, as we know, you know, read Greek and Latin, but who also um, uh, read in manuscript, uh, David Ricardo, whom I just mentioned, his uh, Principles of Political Economy, um, a very tough book for a a fully formed adult to read and digest. Uh, And the younger Mill uh, read it in manuscript and would then, walking through the garden, um, recite the major points in uh, Ricardo's uh, book, 1817 uh, book. Um, this would be no easy task, and, and I think it shows, as I say, the regimentation of the of the experiment and the very high expectations that were placed on him. Um, rightly so, because this is a brilliant person. Um, however, uh, not giving him any choice. And again, you know, the, the theme that I really want to stress in terms of Mill's kind of overarching point is the importance of, of choice uh, and of one's own um, agency in making oneself. And early on, he had none of that. So, you know, I think that it's it's really important to understand not just that, you know, he rebelled against it or that he um, came to appreciate poetry, which of course he did you know later in life um, but but that he was so so constrained early on in his life that it, it just left him no agency at all uh, and I think that was ultimately you know one of the major reasons that he did have the breakdown and he did uh, rebel against his father um, not that he stopped um, appreciating or admiring his father's work um, so there's there's a real tension there uh, but that he did come to realize, um, that um, you know, tyranny, social tyranny, as he talks about in On Liberty, you know, is something that uh, is is much more tyrannical um, if you can sort of measure tyranny uh, than political tyranny. You know, political tyranny closes off some choices. Social tyranny, and I think here he would include the the, the way he was he was brought up, you know, as a form of social tyranny. Um, but he says it, you know, it has, he doesn't use the word tentacles, but it, it infiltrates everything. You know, it, 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 it closes off all of your ability to make choices. Uh, and that for him, that takes away your humanness. 
he uses this word ape-like when he talks about someone who doesn't choose. Um, one only needs the ape-like um, faculty of imitation. Uh, and that's, that's a, a description of someone who's not actually really a human being. Uh, and that's why he thinks choice is so important. Right. And I actually have a quote here from the essential John Stuart Mill. You say his more mature views allowed that people might come to re realize how best to reform, remake and improve themselves. Right. Whereas James Mills, his father's position was that one becomes improved via education. And once educated, that's the end of the matter. So I still find it so fascinating how someone who, as you said, was put through effectively this experiment right from a young age, still underneath that all, came to realize for themselves that, and again, I even italicize on my note this word, improve themselves, that this was still one of something that was honorable, something that was noble, and something that was desirable, rather than to be be an experiment of this, whatever this idea of this educated person is. Yeah, it, so it, I, I think that's exactly right. It, it's it's surprising that he had the strength of character. I don't know if it's surprising, but it's, it's, it's incredible that he was strong enough to get out from under the influence. Um, uh, and I think uh, perhaps it, it's just his own intelligence and his own determination. And if you read, you know, you've read the autobiography, if you read uh, what he's written, uh, if you read his letters to Harriet Taylor, there the first time I read them, I thought, oh, good grief. He's always complaining about being ill. So this is when I was a college student. You know, I read uh, I read all of his letters for some reason. Um, and, and I thought, you know, why would this person always be writing about being ill? Well, first of all, he was ill fairly often. Right. Um, and, and, but secondly, um, uh, you know, it's incredible that even though he, he did have periods where he, he was ill and so did Harriet and so on that they were able to do so much mm -hmm. that he was able to write all of what he wrote, even though he, he, you know, for many months at a time uh, would think that he was, you know, failing, falling ill with consumption or something close to that. Uh, and, and uh, I just, I, I think that there are few people I know of few intellectuals who have such strength of character, um, just, you know, able to work through so many problems. Um, even as Harriet dies, you know, and his life is falling apart, then he still is able to write so many of his important works um, uh, later in life. Right. And even after his his uh, what's termed as his emotional breakdown uh, yes. in, in the younger part of his life, I, I found that. And again, as, as I did read the autobiography, like it's it's not just, you know, one paragraph he uses to address it in there. There's there's a couple of pages that are quite heart wrenching in some areas like he he describes how everything's just bleak. He can't find enjoyment even when he knows he should be enjoy, enjoying things. So it's obviously describing a depression. And uh, and of course, right. towards the end of that, I, if I remember correctly, there was sort of an emotional breakthrough where he I think he metaphorically he said the clouds had parted and he was actually finding uh, even some emotion and enjoyment in literature again and uh, specifically right. fiction or poetry or, or I can't remember exactly what it was but but again that was a that was a huge chunk on his life I, I, I'm assuming that that must have been just sort of that aftermath of, of the experiment he was put through bef before he embarked on that next chapter of his own life right right and I think the you know when he found uh, reading Wordsworth and and other more romantic um, authors think he just found you know a whole new area opened up but also you know the part the clouds parting I think in part was just his realization that that again he he had the ability to reform himself mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and that's what helped the clouds uh, part and helped him you know see that that you know, there was a reason to go on. 
and skipping sort of to one of the end points of the biographical detail because we'll return to some of his work and that'll bring us to either the earlier parts and middle part of his life but just to finish off our little biographical section here so towards the end of his life he actually sat as a member of parliament in England yes. so I'm not sure if, if you'd like to impart any specific highlights or why that's so important again that you stopped at that in the autobiographical section at the beginning of your work before you moved on to actually looking at at his work yes yeah, so the you know the years in parliament are tremendously important because that's where he actually you know mill is not just an egghead intellectual who's you know writing lots of stuff that people might be interested in reading but he's as i said earlier he's living out the kinds of things that he's writing about and and you know he's all about um liberty and human agency and, and improving the lot of the laboring poor, the lot of women who couldn't own property outside of marriage, the lot of the Irish who were not able to rule, govern themselves, um, former slaves, um, and so on. So, so the parliamentary years, you know, during the parliamentary years, he's looking at the expansion of the franchise, uh, knowing that it's coming, speaking right. about it, uh, and, and you know his his work on in on liberty um, on speech and on expression. You know speech is a form of of helping. Speech is the means by one of the means by which we improve ourselves. It's how we um, when we speak to each other, we listen to each other, we live our lives. You know through social interaction, and it's one of the primary mechanisms of social interaction and and we improve ourselves through social interaction so so uh, you know he speaks in parliament so he he lives this message that he's writing about uh, it's more than a message um, but but he he lives out um, the sorts of things that he writes about uh, and again he pays dearly for them so you know when he speaks about um, uh, changing uh, changing rules for women, for instance, uh, to allow them to own property outside marriage. Uh, and when he wants uh, to refer to persons as opposed to men, um, he's then ridiculed in Punch magazine where he's um, uh, shown, you know, showing the ladies into the parlor in one of the um, big cartoons in Punch magazine. Uh, and and the, the headline of that or the, the um, uh, sentence that goes with it is, you know, please make way for these uh, persons, you know, so Mill is, is bringing them into um, the salon. Right. Uh, and, and as I say, is, is uh, um, ridiculed. And then there's another um, cartoon in Judy, which is a little bit less respectful, even less respectful, and he's shown wearing a dress. Um, so he's shown, you know, as a lady, because he's, he's advocating for them. Uh, and then, you know, his, uh, as I say, in, in the essential mill, his, his reputation is, um, even today, um, some would argue that he's not as, as original, that he was under the influence of Harriet Taylor, you know, this woman. Uh, and, and, uh, um, so he pays in terms of his own reputation for intellectual, um, uh, prowess or whatever. Um, so, you know, Hayek isn't, F.A. Hayek is not all that sure that, um, you know, the ideas that um, Mill writes about uh, were Mills and thinks that Harriet Taylor overly influenced um, Mill. Now, I, you know, I think they, they obviously they wrote together, they, uh, they influenced each other, uh, but I don't think Mill can be called unoriginal, you know, as a result of this working relationship he had uh, with Harriet Taylor. So, so 
you know, back to the years in Parliament, um, he those are years when he's making important speeches, when he's trying to effect the reforms that he writes about, um, representative government and so on, enlarging the franchise, ensuring that uh, those who um, who do vote, who are going to get the vote, are people who are informed, who've learned to discuss one with the other, who've learned to listen to each other and so on. So so I, I do think those parliamentary years are are important because they're a sign of just how much he he um, he influenced reform um, by doing things, by making speeches, by being in parliament, uh, and how much how he he lived out the things that he wrote about in On Liberty and Representative Government, in the bi- autobiography, in Principles of Political Economy, in Utilitarianism, uh, and so on. Excellent. No, I think that. That's a that very nicely traces the biographical points and and as you mentioned towards the end there I think that's a great segue into some some of these great works of his and again I'll just say for everyone listening that you know that there's so much we could talk about so I'm going to do my <laughs> best to to think of a a couple of pillars here to push forward our discussion but of course again this is this is a lot to pack into one hour so let, let, let's talk about on liberty uh, in many cases this is uh, a lot of people's uh, first exposure to Mill as well so I think it's a great place to start so again let's let's sort of talk about both both the work itself and his thoughts. And, and you've already talked a bit about this in some of your answers. So, you know, um, for, for one thing, we can talk about the three types of li- uh, liberty and in the name of our episode here, what can we learn from Mill? So he kind of uh, differentiates between uh, the liberty of thought, conscience and expression, the liberty of tastes, pursuits and plans, and of course, the liberty to join other like-minded individuals for a common purpose. So let's go back to the first one, uh, thought, conscience and expression. Why is it important that we uh, distinguish that from from everything else we just talked about? Why did he highlight this and what can we learn from that? Yeah, so that's great. I'm glad you asked that. So, you know, he has this no harm principle. And and what he says is that in areas where one one's actions uh, aren't harmful to others, um, one should have the most uh, possible liberty. And, And those areas are the ones that you just laid out and and thought. Um, for him is extremely important because, again, of this notion of human agency. So one should have the ability to think what one would like to think, you know, to believe Mm -hmm. what one concludes uh, should be believed. And and no one should be able to force one's thoughts to be, you know, something or something else or force one's beliefs, dictate one's beliefs, uh, to be, you know, in a certain direction, uh, and so those are areas where uh, our ac- actions are self, as he would put it, self-regarding. Um, so they're not um, external to ourselves. As long as one doesn't act on those thoughts and beliefs, they're they're completely internal. Uh, and it's important for us as human beings um, to learn how to think. Uh, and you know, Mill is always. Uh, thinking of us as becoming beings, right? As beings who are, are, who exist and who are becoming possibly better, possibly different, uh, and, and who have that ability to become something else. Uh, and it's through the ability to think, through the ability to discriminate, through the ability to compare, um, that one then can make a choice. Uh, and, and so those purely internal actions of thinking and believing uh, are um, the are what's necessary for us to be able to then go ahead and and take an action, uh, and those have to be our own, right? Because they're not other regarding; they're purely self-regarding. Now, when we act, 
you know, that's when there might be some, you know, um, constraint placed upon us. But in our thinking, there can be no constraints, um, or there should be no constraints, he would argue. I mean, I think that's actually a great opportunity to move to the next set of liberties. He talks about tastes, pursuits, and plans. And I've, I've always liked the way that was put. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, there's, each word is so loaded and nice and, and beautiful in its own regard. But, but so we, we move from thought, conscience, and expression to taste, pursuits, and plans. What can we learn from this distinction he makes? Yeah, so that's, that's wonderful. I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up. So, so uh, you know, and this is, I'm an economist, so this is sort of the area where economists tend to, you know, really um, dig deep on um, taste, you know, the things that we like, no one should be able to dictate what we have to like, what we, and no one should be able to dis, to dictate, uh, and I use that word dictate, um, you know, deliberately, uh, because, you know, telling us what to do is dictatorial, it's, it's threatening, um, and, and um, no one should be able to tell us what to pursue. And if we want to be the best uh, 5K runner in the world, you know, it's probably not a good idea for me to pursue that goal, but it can be my goal right. and I can try. <laughs> and, and, uh, and my plan to become that best 5K runner, um, you know, at least in my age category, um, uh, no one can tell me how to make that plan. No, I, I can talk to you about that plan. Right. I could say, Alex, what do you think about this plan? And you can, you know, then we can have a discussion of it. Uh, but no one can actually make that plan for me. It has to be mine, uh, as as does the goal, the pursuit, as does my taste for running in the first place. Um, so that those three words, I think, are, are put together very deliberately um, it, it, um, as a way of, of indicating that uh, we have internal uh in internal mechanisms that um, that say we like this thing versus that thing that allow us to compare this this way of life with that way of life. We pursue whichever way, um, doing a pairwise comparison, you know, whichever route seems to make sense, and or we decide to pursue it, and then we make a plan. Right, to figure out how we're going to put that pursuit in action. And of course, there's times in our life where it's not just us as sort of atomized individuals doing things. We're also joining other like-minded individuals for a common purpose. So can we also get into like what uh, what Mill teaches us here and what we can grab from that? Absolutely. So that's the third area in which um, he says we're making these self-regarding um, uh, choices. So um, no one can say then uh, that it's no one should be able to say uh, certainly not a, a government uh, that uh, what sort of people um, you should associate with uh, what sort of group you might want to join uh, and as you say like-minded people will tend to join together um, those associations for him are an important part of how again we make our social lives and we make ourselves better. We pursue our plans uh, going forward. Uh, and, and for him, you know, he's thinking of actual associations, for instance, of working people, right, who helped each other through illnesses, who um, by sort of a self-insurance mechanism, who helped mm -hmm. each other's, um, uh, helped each other um, advocate for uh, better working conditions and so on. All of those things, he's, he would say, uh, should be subject to um, the, the no harm principle. That is, they, they, um, the association itself, now um, abstracting from the actions that they take, but the association, the grouping together of people uh, is something that should be left uh, to free choice. Um, now, again, 
you know, if they were to then burn down a colliery, um, which would happen in the 19th century, right. um, you know, various violent acts and so on, you know, that would be, of course, uh, a situation that is no longer part of the no harm principle. Um, but the association itself, you know, before it takes any action, Mill is fully in, in favor of uh, enabling people to form whatever kinds of associations they wish to. And I'm, I'm actually, and I do have a note here that we definitely ought to cover the constraints on an individual where Mill thinks that's important, but but to park that for now, just to finish yeah. off this one thread here. So it's clear as one reads through on Liberty, and if people listening haven't yet, I, we, I, we, we, I can speak for both of us here, definitely recommend definitely. that that we uh, that, that, that uh, you guys go check that out. But um, it, it's clear through the entire book that he has uh, thoughts against paternalism, both in like a, a social sense, like in, in, in like the public sphere, but also in the private sphere. Obviously, we talked about his upbringing, so it would make sense why uh, he would be against, or at least, to say the least, have second thoughts or criticism for a sort of private paternalism and guiding an individual too much or directing them, I should say. But but in the public sphere as well, he was he was very worried about how all these liberties we just described uh, went in uh, apply to the public sphere and how specifically public opinion could go. So I'm trying to take us to the point where we get to talk about Mill on free speech and public discussion. Uh, he, here he obviously clearly had ideas and on liberty because he focused on speech specifically. So why, why don't you take us through that? Like, what are your key takeaways of wh- how we should th- uh, think about Mill on free speech and what are the most important things we can learn from him on that area? Yeah, so that's a really important topic and. It's one that's important to me working on a college campus because mm-hmm. free expression, free speech is something that um, uh, is under discussion on college campuses uh, throughout the U.S. at least. Um, yeah, so Mill, Mill thinks that that discussion is an important part of this learning process, this process by which we make ourselves and we remake ourselves and we're constantly Uh, remaking and reforming and bettering ourselves. And it's not so much, you know, that we, uh, you know, through discussion will suddenly become uh, an entirely different person. Um, uh, But it's, it's very small changes on the margin and it's our ability to imagine that we might be um, improved. Mm -hmm. uh, That's important and, and not constraining that ability to imagine. Now, when he talks about speech, you know, so speech is, is a social act. So it's, it's, a little different from uh, the, the purely self-regarding actions of thought and belief, of taste and pursuits of association. It, it's social uh, and it can have um, then um, very beneficial um, uh, social, very, it can be beneficially socially, it can be be, sorry, it can be beneficial socially. Uh, that is, it can lead to agreement or it can lead to an improvement of one's uh, belief or opinion. Um, it, it allows us to, again, to compare, to discriminate uh, amongst arguments, to better, um, better understand our own arguments, to improve our own arguments uh, as we listen to others and so on. Uh, but it, it um, so it has an externality associated with it. Um, you know, we get, we are become better as we talk to one another. Um, so we, so society benefits. Um, he, he does. Uh, so he, so he has a presumption that there should be lots of speech and, and uh, discussion but it's not entirely um, free because there are ways in which discussion can um, harm each other. Um, so it, you know, he has the, the example that he gives of um, uh, 
inciting violence against some other group. You know, that's speech that, in his view, would not be protected. Um, uh, and so then if you think about, you know, college campuses, of course, the devil's all in the details here. But Of course, always. About, <laughs> yes, yes. But, you know, if you think about um, having, say, an unpopular um, person come to a campus um, or, um, you know, that that in itself is not inciting violence. Um, so the presumption would be, well, you know, it might be good for people to listen to an unpopular argument or right. uh, to listen and engage with an unpopular argument. He does acknowledge that um, people can have sectarian views that um, the older word would be factions. Adam Smith would call them factions. Mm -hmm. Today, you know, we just call them uh, politics, yeah. <laughs> uh, parties, you know, political parties. He, he acknowledges that people, uh, when they get in these kind of rigid um, political situations, they are not going to be altered. Their views are not going to be altered by speaking one with the other. Um, but he says, you know, the, the importance of speech is not to get to the extremes so much as to the people who are more toward the middle who might be willing to listen to an argument and to revise their thinking on the basis of having listened. Uh, so the sort of civility that you might uh, associate with a small gathering of, um, say, the Institute for Liberal Studies, you know, where you have a conference and you read a text and you talk to each other and you learn something by talking to each other, by talking amongst yourselves. Um, that's that. Um, that's the kind of speech that he sees having uh, positive externalities associated with it. Um, the sort of situation where, um, you know, we have a debate that will be televised this evening in the United States. You know, I, there's not a lot of benefit that comes from that. Um, well, I, you know, I'm predicting. <laughs> right. <laughs> we'll fair, fair prediction. <laughs> <laughs> because there's just not much listening or not much give and take. And, and you know, if anything, if there's any area that he may have missed the mark and I don't want to say he missed the mark because he did talk about sectarian views but but the, I don't know that he could have imagined a politicized world such as we're living in in 2020 um, right. and, and so that you know I I think there's there's been a breakdown in this notion of listening um, and and even um, sort of truthful revelation um, not that he didn't know about deceit, uh, but I just I, I don't think he anticipated the level of discord that we could have today. And actually, I think that's an excellent place to take our break. We're right there. So we're going to do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Sandra Peart today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything that's on your mind to curioustaskatliberalstudies.ca. As always, a special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Travis Smith, Vincent Geloso, and Amy Willis. Remember, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and of course, rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task.
Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Sandra Peer today. So, so Sandra, in our first half, we covered some biographical points about Mill. We, we did a little bit of a deep dive there into On Liberty. Um, I want to move us on to other things. But but before I do, there was one point that was sort of going on in my mind as you were talking about all the great stuff in On Liberty and what we can learn from Mill there. You were mentioning that could he have possibly envisioned sort of like this, this very heavily uh, tribalized, polarized world that we live in. And I think it's clear that uh, in, in On Liberty, Mill's definitely talking about the, the argument on, on principle is important. Important, not necessarily like posturing and the sort of aesthetic that we see of a quote-unquote debate is today. And and I, I one of my favorite parts of On Liberty is when he sort of takes that principle to the extreme. I believe, if I remember correctly, there was one part where he said that even if we got to a point in the world where everyone believed something and was certain about it, we better go find ourselves a devil's advocate so we can continue to remake ourselves. Even Who knows what that devil's advocate could bring up? Possibly something we missed the first time around. So, so he takes it to the extreme to show his commitment to that principle back to what you're saying at the beginning of of remaking oneself and remaking ourselves as a society i guess at large right absolutely and you know when you think about his economic works um the you know he talks about the um the the situations where if we all agree um we're we're not going to improve scientifically uh and so i think that's that's a really important point um not to say that you know there's something called truth and we can all agree on it or whatever, but um, there's also something called discovery. Uh, and uh, if we all agree on something and, and um, have this decided opinion uh, upon it, then we're never going to continue researching and figuring out, you know, how to have technological change going forward and so on. So, so yes, absolutely. So even when we all agree, we need to be able to, discuss it. And for him, I think a healthy dose of skepticism is really important. So he's always the skeptic um, uh, about himself uh, and about, you know, other opinions. Uh, And, and uh, that healthy dose of skepticism is how we, again, continue to improve our thinking going forward. So yeah. Absolutely. That's important. And I'm just going to shift our gears a little bit here. Time flies on this topic, which is great, but I want to make sure we cover some other things too. As, as I'm sure everybody uh, l- listening can tell, we could probably spend much more time on On Liberty in that area of Mill's thought. But I'm, I'm going to move us um, into another one that should be quick. Obviously, that's a joke. Utilitarianism. This is one of, again, one of Mill's pillars of thought. And, and of course... I'm going to sound like a broken record, but there's hours of discussion that could be had here. But, but for this, but the, for the sake of our podcast, if there's a couple of things you wanted people to understand about what utilitarianism is and, and what it is to mill, what would those sorts of things be? Yeah, so that's a great question, and I'm glad to move to utilitarianism. Um, I I would I would emphasize that for Mill, um, happiness, as he puts it. Um, you know, he talks about happiness, uh, pleasure and pain, absence of pain. Um, it's the happiness of each and we each count equally. Uh, so this is before we get into um, measuring happiness and so on, simply looking at, you know, Alec and Alex and I are trying to figure out whether we should do something going forward. Um, if it's the case that you will be harmed, um, that harm has to count as if it were my own. Uh, so he's, he actually invokes the golden rule in utilitarianism, and I think that's a really important. He's he's not doing so as a because he wants to invoke um, 
the afterlife or you know religion writ large, but he does want to invoke the the notion that we have to each count equally, and, and that's very important. Um, secondly, you know he talks about higher and lower pleasures, uh, and that has um, been the source of much contention um, and discussion. I would say that it's it's really about the fact that for the vast majority of people in his time, uh, there's very few pleasures open to them. Uh, they can barely subsist. Right. Uh, and so he's looking at, at those and, and lumping all of those as the lower pleasures. And he's his what he wants to do is find out the best ways that we can open up the world of other pleasures more than simply eating and having our, our uh, roof over our head, um, but actually being able to read, actually being able to perhaps have some leisure, study a little poetry. Um, he mentions poetry, um, you know, which is, of course, is something near and dear to him. Um, but other things than simply, um, you know, working, eating, procreating, being housed and clothed. Uh, and and so, you know, he doesn't say a lot about what these other pleasures are, but they they are something qualitatively different from the pleasures which just allow us to subsist. Uh, and so that's the higher pleasures. And again, there's a whole bunch of things in there. Um, and so then within that enormous set of higher pleasures, which he is, of course, privy to, and most of his friends and so on are, um, then there's a question, you know, well, so how do you know what's among those, what's better, what's worse? Um, and there I would, I would emphasize he leans very heavily on experience. Um, so there's no a priori way to say he uses poetry and pushpin. Um, I would just say, you know, like um, riding a bicycle versus going to the, the symphony, you know, two really different things. There's no a priori way to compare those. Now, Bentham would have said, everything's comparable. We can measure it all. Um, and, uh, you know, according to uh, various characteristics, how long they last, this and that, um, how long the pleasure associated with them lasts and so on. Um, uh, but Mill will say, well, you know, there's, there's just no easy, simple calculation to make. And these, these things might differ qualitatively. Um, mm -hmm. So there might be quantity involved, but there might also be quality. And so he leans instead on, on uh, experience. And he says, look, if people have experienced the two things, again, going back to a pairwise comparison, if they've experienced two things and they pick one over the other, then revealed preference would suggest that you know, the thing they pick is the thing that, that for them uh, is the, the higher pleasure. Um, and he comes up with this, this uh, idea of phrase, competent judges. Uh, and um, I, again, you know, it's been the subject of a lot of discussions and so on. I would just say by competent judges, he means people who have experienced the two things, the two pleasures. Right. Made, actually been able to make the, the pairwise comparison. Uh, and the other thing I would say is that he would allow that everyone can, can make the judgment. Again, presuming that they've had time and uh, and opportunities uh, to make choices in their life, um, lifetime, lifespan, 
um, they will have the faculties of perception, of judgment, of discriminative feeling. They will have uh, moral preferences, having you know, engaged in choices. Uh, and then they'll be able to make those choices, discriminations in terms of higher and lower pleasures. Um, it does sound a little elitist to say competent judges, um, but I think if you if we understand it as as if we understand competence as those who have experience, um, then it's not actually as elitist as people have made it out to be. And, and moving this this train of thought, or I should say, continuing that train on the track towards uh, public policy in the public sphere, if you will. Um, I, I in the first half of our conversation, I said let's park constraints on the individual for now. But I think now that we're talking about utilitarianism, we should unpark that. So even in in your uh, the essential John Stuart Mill, you note that some sometimes have a hard time grappling with this idea of the on liberty John Stuart Mill, who's clearly talking about the principles of liberty, freedom of thought, uh, conscious expression, taste pursuits, plans, uh, joining with other like minded individuals. Some people have a hard time grappling with that mill and then talking about his utilitarianism and some of his views on public policy. But I guess what I got from your work, at least on this, is that if you understand utilitarianism in, in a serious way, it is it becomes easier to understand where John Stuart Mill talks about where the individual should be constrained by whether it's the government or society or, or what have you. Yes. So again, utilitarianism is very much reform-minded. So it's about how we reform society to enable choice uh, to take place um, and how we um, offer up opportunities. So there's a bit of a positive uh, note to it as well. Offer up opportunities uh, to people who in his lifetime didn't actually uh, enjoy those kinds of opportunities. So, um, uh, you know, a lot of his reforms are dismantling the privilege that existed in the 19th century. Um, so, you know, if it's the case that uh, some people aren't uh, able to vote, you know, there's a major reform, which he would argue at least once they're capable. Right. You know, so he does this, have this notion that they must become capable. But once they're capable of making these discriminative um, evaluations of arguments, political arguments, and so on, they will be able to make political judgments, um, and they should be able to govern themselves or be part of governing themselves, that is in a political sense. Um, so yes, there are definitely um, uh, a number of reforms that he wants to, to have happen to, as I say, dismantle privilege. There's also one major one, um, which is education, right? So that's it's in some sense it's dismantling privilege if you know only some people are educated and the vast majority are not. Um, but he, I think he thinks of it in a more sort of positive way. You know, everyone should be educated, uh, and the state should ensure that people are educated. And there, I think he's got a kind of a public goods argument uh, and an externality argument uh, in uh, involved, where if parents are not are not ensuring that their children are educated, um, they're harming their children, right? And so they should be forced then uh, to ensure that their children are educated. He, of, of course, because he's John Stuart Mill, does not want the state to have a monopoly on education, right. um, although he would see public provision as something that would be uh, uh, that he would sanction. So public provision, but not, and, and forcing people to, um, as I say, to educate their children, uh, but not a state monopoly. Uh, and that, you know, really goes to the social tyranny 
argument that he has. That he sees a great danger in foresees a danger in allow, allowing the state to take over education and then, you know, create this sort of um, uniformity that he despises, uniformity of beliefs and of actions uh, that might be possible if we have a, a, um, a uniform education offered across all of Great Britain. Um, so, so definitely not for monopoly in the form of education. And, and actually taking sort of what we talked about just there in your answer with the utilitarianism and on liberty, you mentioned the word monopoly. I can use that to shift our gears over to something Mill addressed at his time, which was uh, the topic of socialism. So it, it was it was clear to me when I was reading some Mill's uh, writings on socialism as well that he wasn't unsympathetic to some of the arguments about uh, people who were making the arguments at the time uh, for, for more autonomy, workers' rights, things like that. However, of course, it seemed that where his sympathy ended for that was exactly what that one word you said, monopoly. When there was a form of state socialism being discussed, here is where he he, he agreed, being, right. being the liberal he was, that this may be, even in the best of circumstances, based on good notions and people's genuine want for a better future, but the going the sort of uh, central planning and, and direction route, that's again where this this collided in Mill's head that we, we can't reconcile these two. So so that, that's what I pulled out of Mill's writings on socialism, at least. Uh, but but I'd, of course, like you to go further on that and, and what we can learn from his thoughts on, on, on socialism. Right. So that's absolutely right. So he he makes the argument. He, he writes to um, his friend who's a uh, uh, follower of the socialists at the time and says, you know, it's never been tried that we've had one single goal for society. And I don't think it should be tried, mm-hmm. you know, that we would have one goal because uh, and he doesn't go on to say this in the letter, uh, but his idea is, you know, we're all individuals. We have our own goals. Remember our own plans, our own pursuits, uh, and they're not the same. And he thinks that variety in society is really important. A thriving society is one in which there's lots of idiosyncratic people. There are unusual people. There are people who, who um, you know, pursue whatever taste they've got. Uh, and, and uniformity is dullness. For him, and it's awful. And so, so you know, if we're all different, or you know, many of us have different tastes and pursuits, then there there would be no way we could decide on a single goal. Uh, and so, it's never been tried. It should not be tried. And interestingly, uh, Friedrich Hayek takes that argument, takes up that argument uh, in the Road to Serfdom, and says, you know, there's no singular goal. We can't we can't decide. You know, should it be growth? Should it be high average GDP? Should it be, you know, less dispersion of wealth? There's there's nothing that we can decide on, um, or very few things. So at any rate, um, uh, Mill, that's that's the major or a major reason why he ends up moving away from the socialist schemes. At the same time, he's extremely fair, and he's also he knows the, some of the socialists, utopian socialists, the early socialists. Well, personally, uh, friends with them, not with August Comte, uh, but with uh, Gustave Dital. And, and so he's very fair and, you know, measured. And this is typical Mill. You know, he's constantly thinking of objections to his own point of view mm-hmm. and giving them a fair read and thinking them through. Um, he does think that they have some, um, so some of the plans have some merit to the extent that they keep competition involved, uh, and some of the plans did, uh, among the, the uh, Charles Fourier, for instance, uses some idea of competition uh, to get 
uh, output um, as large as possible, ensure it's as large as possible. So to, you know, to that extent, he thinks, okay, you know, that might be, it, it might help the plan, you know, um, uh, work out. But his idea is if these things, you know, let's let them flourish on their own. If they're, if they're worth trying, someone will try them. Uh, and then if they succeed, they'll spread because they're successful. So, you know, try it on a small scale, uh, see if it succeeds. And then again, as I said, if it does, someone else will, will try the same kind of experiment somewhere else rather than, so, so that's his notion. Like, don't say it's not possible, mm-hmm. allow it to take place. Uh, but certainly don't um, suggest that this should be state imposed, you know, that there should be, you know, a government that says, okay, we're all going to be San Simonians today. Right, top down. Uh, that, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so you know, a lot of people think, oh, he flirted with socialism, um, and, and he certainly read the socialists and talks through them in his principles. Um, and he's not a huge fan of capitalism as he sees it. Um, in you know mid nineteenth century uh, England, because uh, there are a lot of things going wrong with it. Um, in particular, you know he thinks Ireland, um, with absentee landlords and so on, has has really you know, seen some poverty that is institutionally determined. You know, so mm-hmm. there's no there's not enough incentive there to improve the land because not for the peasants to improve the land. Uh, those who are working the land, because the the uh, returns to that go simply to uh, absent land landowners, uh, and so you know, they are very poor uh, because uh, institutions are screwed up in in Ireland, uh, and so that you know his his when he looks at poverty, he's often fi- he often finds an institutional reason for it. Um, another one is um, it's not an institutional reason, but another explanation for poverty in, in his time is excessive births. And he's, he is very worried about population um, pressures. Uh, but his, his um, conclusion about that, or one of them at least is, uh, or his argument about it is, if women were educated and they could enter the labor force, if they had something other than marriage mm-hmm. that was in their future, then they would have fewer children. So he thinks that problem will correct itself at some point if women are given the ability to enter and exit marriages. Um, and he has you know, the marriage contract is one contract that he thinks should not be a lifelong contract. Um, uh, and, and so that's, you know, that's another whole other sort of argument he makes. But but um, yes, absolutely. You know, he's he thinks that institutional reform can help in a capitalist society, the sort of capitalist society he's living in, can help actually make capitalism work better. Um, and so, so you know, he's not fully in favor of what he sees, but he's not. He's also not in favor of state-imposed socialism. Very much opposed to that. Yeah, and I think I think it's obviously to, to his merit that none of when you read through his stuff on socialism, you don't see knee-jerk reactionary polemics. Right. What you see is somebody trying to work through the arguments, object to themselves. It, it's a very honorable approach to it, in my opinion, when I read that. So Yeah, yeah. The other thing I would mention just quickly is that you know, he says, looking forward, he says, I don't really see how it's possible that we will have a hereditary division of people into workers and capitalists. Uh, and it's important he he puts that ad, adverb in there hereditary um, mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, it's important that 
it, you know, it's not, not just that people are workers or capitalists, it's that they, there's no mobility, right? So if mobility were to change, then it might be all right to have you know, this division, but it's just that there's no freedom for people to move from one thing in which they're born, one, the class in which they're born to the other class. So today, you know, fast forward to today, you know, we have m- perhaps not enough, but, you know, much more mobility uh, across different strata of society. And, and I think he would look at that at, as a good thing, obviously, you know, so it's mm-hmm. not that you're, you know, you're a professor's daughter and you have to be a professor. You can go do something else. And, uh, and as our time here winds down, I'm going to ask one more question, then we'll head to the okay. formal wrap up. Um, and I and this is something we mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation, but I did allude to. I wanted to address it a little later. His relationship with Harriet Taylor. We're, we don't have time to get all into that, but I, but on one specific point, I, I'd like you to, to leave us with on, on this in this area here. A lot of people, and and you mentioned one before. I think it was Hayek had uh, you know had their suspicions that he there was undue influence on him by Harriet Taylor, and I think we'd be silly not to acknowledge the fact that people may have made more of this simply made more of this than anything it was because she was simply a woman. So I mean. That's that's obvious when you read some of these people. You know, I think in your book you even noted that Amesis comment on this that you know she maybe befuddled him or whatever the word was. So, right. what's your high level take takeaway on this? You're an expert on John Stuart Mill. You you've obviously know very much a lot about Harriet Taylor Mill as well. On on this note, is this is this a silly proposition? Is there any merit to it? What what's your main takeaway for this idea that John Stuart Mill was unduly influenced by by this woman in his life that he clearly loved? So you know, I think they had. A- partnership. Uh, it was a, a partnership of romantic, you know, partnership, um, uh, living together and so on, a marriage. Uh, but they also clearly, and I said, mentioned earlier, I listen, I read all the letters um, that John Stuart Mill wrote, and many of them were to Harriet, of course. Um, but they, and those letters clearly go through the intellectual um, challenges that they're thinking about and so on. And, and you know, John Stuart Mill was the more prolific of the two, uh, but she wrote as well. And she wrote with him uh, and and he with her. And and so, I, you know, I think um, who knows which idea belonged to which person. Uh, I don't think it particularly matters that much, but I do think that she influenced him and he influenced her. Um, so it went in both directions. Um, and I, uh, so, you know, I think a lot of his views predate his meeting and and certainly his marriage to Harriet. Um, so for instance, he wrote, and I put this in the, uh, the Harriet Taylor compilation I did with John Stuart Mill, um, their correspondence, uh, he wrote an essay and I put this in, so, you know, I republished it. Uh, very early on, 1832, 1833, we're not quite sure of the date, it, it, that she asked him to write, and it was his views on women and marriage. Um, and really, uh, if you read that essay, uh, there's nothing that's inconsistent with the much later uh, subjection of women, 1869, that he wrote. Um, and and so, you know, that book, or a little piece, uh, people say, well, that was, and I believe it, I, I say this too. It really was co-authored with Harriet Taylor. Um, but does that mean that she made him change his mind between 1832 and 1869? Not particularly. Um, he had those views that he stated to her very early on. And they were essentially that 
you know, women should be raised to have the same opportunities as men. It's, that's essentially what his his position was, uh, and it remained the same. And and institutional arrangements meant that they didn't. Uh, and so that was, you know, part of his life's work. It was part of hers as well to try to improve uh, the institution of marriage, to try to improve legal arrangements so that women, as I said earlier, could own property outside of marriage. Um, so, so had the views very early on. She had them as well. And I think that's partly why they had the romance. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's uh, you know, one falls in love with people who, believe similar things sometimes. Uh, and I think it certainly happened with the two of them. And I and I hate to leave that point there, but it is time for our formal wrap up now. So in each episode, we want to make sure the guest has the last word, actually. So let me just say we've talked about a lot. If we can try and bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question today, allow me to ask you, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on what we can learn from John Stuart Mill? If you want to leave someone listening here with one or two things to, to remember, what would you hope that would be? Oh, that's a great question. So Mill, I think, is dealing with a question that is still alive today. Uh, and that question is, how do we go about improving ourselves in the context of social life, in the context of living one with the other. Uh, And in his view, I think, um, the way we will achieve that, the way we will best improve ourselves and then improve society, because by improving ourselves, we improve society, is through um, much voluntary action and choice, through the exercise of our human faculties of perception, of discrimination, of judgment, uh, through the uh, moral uh, preference that we uh, we gain only by making choices. Um, if we don't make choices, we are not moral individuals. If we don't make choices, we're not fully human. And so, you know, the way we better ourselves is to have. enough liberty, a fulsome amount of liberty so that we can make those kinds of choices. Uh, And by doing so, we'll be more capable and more valuable to society. Uh, And so that I think he gives us one of the very best explanations for why we care about liberty. It's not just because it's efficient or it gives us no big output or this or that. It's because that's how we all thrive. That's how we reform ourselves and each other. That's what I would leave you with. Well, well, I think that's excellent. I think we'll leave it there. Sandra Peart, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. You're welcome. I was happy to be here. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.